As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Kurt, thank you so much for being here. Kurt has a fascinating podcast, a video uh, on, on, on uh, videos on uh, YouTube where he has interviewed some extremely interesting people. It's one of the most thoughtful, uh, um, uh, interesting, uh, and and I think uh, uh, in, in many respects, fascinating um, podcast that I know of. Uh, there's no attempt to uh, uh, try to sort of insert unnecessary humor, uh, which some, some shows try to do, and I actually find kind of frustrating sometimes because it just ain't that funny. Um, and um, yeah, and you've touched on some topics that I think would be of of real interest to us here. Uh, and now the the show is called Theories of Everything, and of course, you know, theory. There are there are any number of theories of everything, um, but you also have a really strong focus on consciousness. And, and recently, uh, uh, you have brought in a lot of uh, people who are kind of big players in a field that's exploded in the last five or 10 years, which is used to be known as UFOs, UAPs. Um, and there has been a real significant uh, a shift sort of in the degree of acceptance and openness. Uh, there are still people who want to dismiss it, whatever it is, because that's, of course, another one of the interesting things is uh, uh, what is the it that we're referring to? You've had any number of people on your show and we and they can range from people who are interested in technology, in uh, uh, extraterrestrials, to people who have, like Jacques Vallée, who have very, diff very different views that draw on, on mythology uh, and, and very much on consciousness as well to, to, to attempt to explain what's going on. So we thought this would be this would be an interesting topic, and maybe Kurt, you could start just by telling us a little bit of what got you into doing this in the first place, and and how did you get to sort of frame it this way and decide who you were going to invite on your show? Firstly, thank you so much for the compliments. I appreciate that. I hope I live up to them. So 
how did I get into this? I almost have always been interested in math and physics, particularly the largest mysteries in math and physics, like can you prove the Riemann hypothesis and how do you solve the problem of quantum gravity and so on. And then in school, so I went to university for physics and math, and then I did stand up on the side. So you mentioned humor and the lack of it in theories of everything. There's a reason for that. Even though I studied stand-up in the sense that I used to perform it, I studied comedy. The reason is that I feel like many people inject a joke every once in a while for no other reason. It's not necessarily to entertain, but it's out of insecurities for one's own inadequacies on the subject. And so they detract or they distract. And also, unless you've put in decades into comedy, it's not second nature. It takes an extreme amount of effort to come up with even one joke because you're constantly generating alternatives when the person is speaking and you're relating it to what they've said before and saying, can I make a joke here? Is there a pun? Is there wordplay? And so on. There are many potential humorous paths and then you have to evaluate in real time and then say one. I'd rather put my attention on the topic and the guest. So when they're speaking, I'm relating it to what I know and then I'm thinking, okay, what are my objections? What questions do I have? Regardless, getting back. So I did stand up. Then I went into filmmaking in university and just pursued filmmaking afterward. As I was doing that, I had a documentary, started putting out the interviews for the documentary on YouTube, and that was akin to a podcast. It was just the extra footage from the documentary, but people seemed to like it. So I thought, okay, now that COVID is here and I'm not doing much, I'm just at home, and I'm always interested in math and physics, always been, why don't I go back to toes, to theories of everything, and speak to someone like Donald Hoffman, who everyone says, well, I've listened to much of what he said, and I don't understand what he's saying. Yeah, it's conscious observers, the core. And I find podcasts or general interviews of him to be extremely vague. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he's a scientist and he's put out papers. I can read those papers. Luckily, I understand the math. So why don't I just go in, read the papers, and then ask him questions about it? So I did that. And people seem to like that, this technical podcast, this podcast where you go into the math and you're not afraid to show equations on the screen and ask someone about partially ordered sets and other abstruse terminology that ordinarily wouldn't make it into a podcast. So I started doing that. People liked it and I love it so much. This is like, it's banging on all cylinders for me. As for how I choose the guests, well, it's much like I imagine many people here are in university or taking courses. So I have the Theories of Everything podcast has a point in the sense that it's not just me interviewing people I find interesting or having a conversation, quote unquote. Let's just have a conversation. That's what most people will say. I'm trying to understand the landscape of theories of everything. I'm trying to potentially build my own toe or at least have my own worldview. Let's say I would like to eventually get to string theory. Well, then I may see something called loop quantum gravity as a precursor. And then I may see something else, certain interpretations of quantum mechanics as a precursor to that. So that I think in terms of prerequisites, like a course, and then I think, okay, well, this guest, while I'm studying for this one, this would help me with studying for this one and so on and so on. So that's how I choose the guests. That's great. Thank you. Leslie, we have here our, 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 my, my friend and esteemed colleague, Leslie Combs, who has written some fascinating and important books on consciousness. So um, I know that, that you have uh, some thoughts and you've just seen uh, uh, many of, of Kurt's um, shows and you know, there are any number of guests that have explored that topic. So I wonder if you have any comments or questions, Leslie. Well, I think it's uh, interesting how the topic of consciousness <clears throat> has changed in the last 10 or 20 years. When I first started to be interested in consciousness, uh, 
It generally was said that uh, to be conscious, you had to be a highly intelligent creature of some kind, probably with language, which meant, of course, human beings. And now uh, we're looking at practically anything alive <laughs> uh, that's conscious, certainly anything with a brain. And uh, the theories, uh, I used to go to the big Tucson meetings once a year still do sometimes that this was like the biggest conference in the world on consciousness. And I've always been something of a panpsychist. And, you know, they would put us in the back room. <laughs> panpsychist, we got a little uh, talk set up for you in the back room at uh, six in the evening uh, before dinner. And that wasn't that many years ago, I think five, six years ago. And now panpsychism is all over the place. David Chalmers is uh, waffling about it. Um, and then uh, we've talked to these other people, Bernardo Cast Castro. Is that the way you, I'm bad with pronunciation? Mm -hmm. Castro. Uh, I was very impressed with your interview with him. I was very impressed with him as well. Uh, and it seems like uh, he and, and Goff uh, is the other one that I... Uh, Philip Goff that I really enjoyed and have listened to some interviews on. He's a panpsychist. <clears throat> um, the field has changed pretty dramatically. And one of the things I've noticed is uh, it, it used to be that uh, people that talk about consciousness, at least in the brain mind community, were very reductionistic, sort of like Daniel Dennett, you know. I heard Daniel Dennett talk a few years at Tucson, and I, I told my wife, he's a really good talk, and he, he basically did everything but make it go away. <laughs> but he's such a, you know, he's such a materialist. He had three or four kinds of materialism he wanted to talk about. But um, it's all changed so much, and another interesting trend I see is these... Uh, philosopher neurology types that are really looking into consciousness as they get to midlife and beyond they sort of get spiritual in a way uh you know bernardo castrop when he's all done he's talking about some kind of uh almost what they used to call cosmic consciousness it somehow divvies itself up to uh, individuals william james talked about that kind of thing too but he was you know, he was a great uh, writer about spiritual experiences, uh, religious experiences, and so on. So, um, and I heard some of that from Goff, not too much, but there's this tendency, uh, especially among the relatively new uh, panpsychists, to get to get sort of uh, cosmic, uh, to get sort of spiritual. And the idea, you know, uh, James' metaphor that you could see uh, islands on the surface, but they're all connected underneath. So I don't know what, uh, Kurt, what do you, what's your impression? I think you're more up to date on these things than I am right now because I've been off teaching courses and other topics, but uh, curious to see because you clearly have read and thought about these things 
I noticed that there's a trend between those who are atheistic become more spiritual as they age. I don't know if that's true for those who are more religious. Well, maybe it's been there their whole life. It seems like there's this God-shaped hole. So people like Bernardo <laughs> and even Sam Harris, even Larry David. So this is interesting. When I watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, the show, when you think about it, for someone who's a staunch atheist, the show is about people transgressing on objective morality subtle social objective morality it's someone who's no. pointing out and constantly observing it there's this moral or spiritual push and the more that you try to deny it well it seems to rear its head somewhere as for us all being connected so firstly like i was an exor an an inexorable atheist an uncompromising and resolute one up until just a few years ago I'm not a theist now but i'm not a, i'm certainly not an atheist i'm extremely open to god or at least i hope i am would say that, no, it's obvious we're not connected. If we're connected, it's the quantum fields, and then, sure, we're connected to a cup because you share the same electromagnetic field and so on. And then I became more open to it, and now I see it as the easiest case to make is that consciousness is fundamental. And I'm a rebel. I'm someone who is a contrarian. So because it's easy to say... Yeah, that's a good word. Right. And because it seems like the almost every single person who studies spirituality believes we're all connected, it's all one, I just see it as the easiest path now. And so I want to say, no, it's not. Pluralism all the way. Forget about non-dualism. Yeah. And I also tend to think that the easiest path is, is usually the incorrect one. Morally, it's the incorrect one. The primrose path is the one that's the path of least resistance, but it's the path of peril as well. Mm. So I'm uncertain if it's all one or what that means. I'm open to it, though. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. 
Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. I was going to ask you something related to that. There was a book came out a few years ago by uh, Robert Lanza. Biocentrism, are you familiar with this? I'm supposed to be familiar with it. He was listed as one of the most influential writers in the United States at the time uh, because his book had such an impact, and he's written a sequel to it. But his argument is pretty simple. That is, as I understand it, uh, for anything to be real, the wave function has to collapse. And for the wave function to collapse, uh, there has to be uh, an observation. In other words, consciousness has to be involved. So his approach is, and he makes a good argument for it, that, you know, not only do we not know what's on the dark side of the moon, there there is no dark side of the moon. because, Or it's like the, the tree that falls in the forest. Does it make a sound? Well, if nobody hears it, it doesn't make a sound. In fact, there's no tree. In fact, there's no forest. Uh, everything that is that we talk about and experience, sort of like, uh, you know, Bernardo was saying in your interview with him, uh, mapped onto our, the inside of our head or something, all has to come from the collapse of the wave function, which has to come from consciousness. So there has to be an observer or there's nothing there. It's a strange and simple-minded idea, but his book, Biocentrism, has been really influential. And uh, he makes a very strong argument. You have to read it or listen to him talk. I, I found some interviews with him, but I was surprised at what a poor speaker he was. So I recommended mm. the book, not, not his uh, interviews. There are quantum theories without observers. So it's false to say that we require an observer in quantum mechanics. Just so you know. Well, there's some agreement about that now. Yeah, there's certainly disagreement. But what I'm saying is that you can still formulate quantum mechanics and reproduce all the results that we have without defining an observer as a privileged place for an observer. So, for example, mm. someone I'm speaking to tomorrow, his name is Tim Maudlin, and he has a formulation of quantum mechanics without the observer. He, I'm studying him right now, so I'm not able to recapitulate his arguments. But let me see if I could... There's something called the PBR theorem. I don't know if you, you people have heard of Bell's theorem. And Bell's theorem yeah. seems to indicate that you have to either do away with statistical independence or locality. And it seems like, hey, maybe we can throw away locality. And then you can save that quantum particles indeed have some reality to them prior to them being observed. All I'm saying is well, that there exists other interpretations of quantum mechanics 
where there isn't a privileged place for the observer. And I feel like what's happening is that the Neil deGrasse Tyson would say something like, oh yeah, mystery, consciousness, mystery, quantum mechanics. So therefore they're the same, ha ha. And he's being snide about it. And so I don't like that. I do see the point. I wouldn't say it with such derision. The point is that, or what I see is people reasoning backward. So for example, with Bernardo Castro, I remember he was telling me, yeah, Kurt, look, the whole universe is cosmic because, and I can even get the tendrils of the galaxies and the filaments. It looks brain-like. And I'm thinking that's such, I call it non-disconformatory evidence. So it's evidence that if it wasn't there, it doesn't disconfirm your theory. So if we say, oh, actually, when you look at it from an even greater point of view, it looks nothing like a neural net. Then he would say, okay, well, I still believe in my theory though. Okay. So you're trying to attach your, you already have a theory and you're just trying to attach it to the next mystery. I understand. Well, I think that's what's going on. I imagine that if and there's so many mysteries in science that it doesn't need to be tied to quantum mechanics. Imagine quantum mechanics eventually has some prosaic explanation. Like, were mysteries in the early 1900s that eventually, oh, okay, well, there's a photon instead of a wave. Like, there's an actual particle, and then the photoelectric effect is explained like this. But imagine if people around the early 1900s tied all of their spirituality to the photoelectric effect. Then you find, oh, well, it has some other prosaic explanation. Well, then do you throw out your spirituality? Perhaps not. So... I find that what people are doing is they're tying their hopes a bit too much to quantum mechanics. But who knows? Like, Well, you know, there's always been this, uh, for, for, for a long time, there's been this tendency to try to start at the bottom. So try to understand what's going on at the lowest possible level and build up from there. So if we can understand how quirks and so on are going we can understand atoms if we understand atoms maybe we can understand molecules and so on and mm -hmm, building, mm -hmm. building that direction uh just in terms of more of a general philosophy of science uh it's interesting if you can start from the top down and i wouldn't know how to do that in terms of quantum physics because they're already at the bottom but in biology, if you look at ecosystems, for example, I noticed uh, Lovelock just passed away three or four days ago at over 100 years old. Absolutely brilliant man. Uh, you know, he's looking at ecosystems as self-organizing systems. And you start from the top down with those. In fact, the whole idea of Gaia is that the Earth itself is a is a system <clears throat> and you know that's been bannered around a lot of new age talk and stuff but but Lovelock's a genius he was a very bright guy and you know he did a lot of science besides Gaia but the idea is that uh, at least biological systems are to some extent informed and pushed from higher levels and that seems to be true in the brain too who was the guy that got the Nobel Prize about 20 years ago for his work? He did work in a number of different areas. He was at Caltech. Uh, but he was the first person that really started talking about consciousness in the cortex. And he said it hauled around the neurons. That was the term he used. So it was a top-down kind of causality going on in the brain. Uh, so I don't know if that makes any sense. I mean, I'm not trying to uh, upstage real quantum physics, which I don't even begin to understand. But I am saying it's interesting that we're trying to always 
understand the universe from the bottom up. And, uh, you know, uh, there's all this evidence, or I don't know what to call it, for the anthro, what's that, anthropo theory? The idea that the, the universe is put together in some kind of a way that allows life. The anthropic tropic, principle. The anthropic principle, which I think most everybody agrees with. They don't have any idea what the reason for it is, whether it's just random and we happen to be in the only cosmos in the universe that supports hmm. life, or whether God is sitting at the desk and... <laughs> arranging things upstairs for us it sort of screws up once in a while but it's doing a pretty good job or what it is but you know if you think in terms of the anthropic principle of all the many 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 variables uh at all levels of physics and biology that that you know from the temperature that ice melts right on out uh yeah, it's a, there's a lot of top-down thinking involved there, or questions involved there. So anyway, I don't mean to run on, but yeah, I'm interested if you have thoughts on that. Or if you don't, I'll let you off the hook. But <laughs> that was... Uh... I don't have thoughts on why the constants are the way they are. So that's called the fine-tuning problem. Why is it that there's yeah. a limited range and we happen to be in it? And if it was slightly... Outside of this range, I think there's 26 constants, just minorly tweaked, then galaxies would either implode or explode and so on, and we wouldn't be here. But that's strange. I don't know. I need to look into that. As for, ah, yes, yeah, strong emergence is what you're referring to. So emergence, we believe that there are emergent properties because water looks smooth, but then we imagine, imagine that it's jostling molecules underneath, discrete. Yeah. And then even underneath that, there's fields again. But as for strong emergence, can something arise from the bottom that creates an upper layer that goes back to influence the lower layer in some non-trivial mm -hmm. way that can't always be reduced to the lower layers. I'm extremely open to that. I'm so looking forward to talking to people who have coherent theories about that. It seems obvious. I'm sorry. It seems like the easiest case to make is that reductionism is correct. And that's one of the ways that people say, well, it's, the brain is what generates consciousness because, well, no, I, I've lost my train of thought there, but it's basically that if you zoom into any part of the universe, you see that the laws of physics aren't broken. So if you zoom into a cell, say, okay, well, it's not breaking any laws of physics here. You look in quantum mechanics, it's not breaking any laws of physics. You look at the galaxies. Well, there are some discrepancies with whether or not gravity should be modified and so on because of dark matter. But as a whole, there, there are no laws of physics being broken. So if you say you have free will, if you're conscious, then it's it's a strange form of consciousness without free will, but if you have free will, well, where is that being injected into the laws of physics because they're not broken at any level? I don't buy that logic. <laughs> and the yes. reason why I don't buy that logic is because there are structures in math that can look a certain way locally, but then be non-trivially ordered globally. So for example, a circle. If you look locally and all you see is a straight line, you would think, and every time you observed, all you see is a straight line. Everyone you communicated with on the phone sees a straight line. You'd think, well, the universe is a straight line. However, the manifold, so you can have a manifold of a circle, right. which is locally like a straight line, but it's non-trivially connected. So globally, it's curved, or globally, it's a circle. In fact, any one-dimensional manifold is flat. It's always going to be locally flat. So that is to say that just because something looks a certain way locally, that is, I look here and I observe no violation of the laws of physics. I look here, I see no violation, no violation. doesn't mean there's not some non-trivial violation somehow when they all stitch together. Yeah, you know, you probably read some of Rupert Sheldrick's work, and uh, 
you know, he's been looking at constants, like the constant, uh, the temperature at which uh, different chemicals uh, will liquefy. And um, these are chemical constants. And he's, he's discovered that over many years, they actually change if you look at the <laughs> chemical tables. So I'm no expert on this, but he, he has questioned whether, you know, the idea, we've always had the idea that the, the laws of physics are the same through all time and mm. everywhere in the universe. Mm -hmm. And he's not saying they're radically different somewhere else, but he is questioning whether that principle is really entirely valid. You know, the laws, you know, it's an interesting use of the word law in laws of physics. It actually comes from old Catholicism, which is what's right and what's wrong. You break a law, uh, God's law, and then that eventually became solidified into talking about laws and physics. It was a, sort of a strange business. Well, it's just the fact that they follow the laws. So let's imagine right now we think of the theory of everything as, well, what are the laws? I think a metatoe is, well, why the heck do they even follow them? So just because you found the pattern, why is it not breaking the pattern? And how does it know? How does an electron know to do what it's doing? Maybe that's not the right way to think about it. But then what's the right way of thinking about it? Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting point. Well, I don't want to take up too much time with my own interests here that we share. But I do want to say that I've really enjoyed your discussions of time. Uh, I and uh, many of our students here are interested in time, the nature of time, uh, what time, you know, how time works, if time travel is possible, how do people have dreams of the future, which evidently they do sometimes. <laughs> And then there are different models, like I think one of your interviewees mentioned, Lee Smolin, who's a you know great hero of mine mm -hmm. as well. He's all about quote a universe saturated in time. So, and I'm a big uh, fan of as is Alfonso Prigogine, the idea that time is based on basically chaos not entropy, but organization over time. So I don't know what thought what you thought you have. I you know there's we've got so much uh, entertainment nowadays, movies and shows on TV all the time about time travel. They're absolutely fascinating. But it seems to me that they all assume a blocky universe this is what William James called the universe in which everything is fixed. So that 20 years from now, whatever is there is there, and that's going to stay there. Uh, and that that just can't happen in a universe that's process-based, you know. So like Prigogine talks about dynamical systems and uh, creativity in the cosmos. So time has to be, I think, more as uh, Schmolin says, real it's actually it's real you can't go forward or backward in it i don't know i'm running on and i'm no expert so i, I wonder if you have thoughts about that i mentioned it because it's come up in a couple of the interviews so sure again the easiest route to go is to say that time doesn't exist and that's why i like to explore realist time theories 
because it's just it's simple to say hey look the laws of physics are the same forward and backward there's no preference and so if your experience of time is flowing well that's because of entropy it's a statistical inevitability it's not something in the laws of physics themselves it's some illusion when i mentioned earlier tim modlin who has quantum mechanics without observers he says the only way at least for him that he does that is by positing real time that time moves forward yeah that you can't posit an extra structure called a foliation so you can split space time up into time slices of, so that you can split space time up and then there are people like nicholas jisson who says actually the whole problem of thinking that time well more than one problem of physics comes from assuming something called classical logic so classical logic is what we all learn as logic. That is, you can't have a contradiction, so A and not A can't be true, unless you have the principle. Of, so unless everything is true, A and not A can't be true. No. And there are there are other formulations of logic. One is called intuitionist logic. That's something that computer scientists are familiar with. And apparently, and I've forgotten how it goes, but Nicholas Jisson believes that in intuitionist logic, firstly, that should ground physics. And secondly, when you have intuitionist logic, that that gives a process to physics where each point in time is different than the last. And the world is constantly unfolding. So there's a direction as well. It's not so foolish to think that time is real. Right now in physics, it's considered, I would say the consensus is time is some illusion, at least in my experience from interviewing mm. people and reading. I don't think that that's so foregone that time is real. By the way, interestingly, Tim Maudlin, I don't know what he means by this, because right after this, I have to go and study. But Tim Maudlin says that Einstein's taken to have spatialized time, but actually what we need to do is temporalize space. But time is so much more real. We should need, make space more like time rather than time more like space. Now, I'm unsure of exactly what he means because they're symmetric in a sense in the special relativity. They're not entirely yeah. symmetric. There's only one dimension of time and, and so on. But at least structurally, they look symmetric. So I don't know what he means, and I would like to learn more. It sounds poetic. Interesting. Well, uh, Alfonso, do you want to ask any questions? Or? Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I just want to say how much I appreciate um, how you are engaging with these very complex and difficult questions that you know don't have a clear answer by any means, and where in some cases we don't really even know what an answer would look like you know and and it my my own interest uh uh if i can put it in you know very casual terms if you will is is i've always been fascinated and well how do you study weird shit how do you <laughs> so how do you study stuff yeah. like you know what ufos uaps right i mean a lot of people wouldn't just say it's weird. They would say it's just nonsense, right? And right. and my experience has been that in these cases, it's it's not uh, always uh, um, possible sort of to have exploratory conversations where people are thinking together, not getting too attached to a particular point of view and remaining open to possibilities, to seeing alternatives, to seeing in things in different ways. And that's 
that's what I really uh, appreciate about about your show too is that you bring in all these guests who have different perspectives and sometimes you know the, the perspectives that are quite different from each other but you engage them in a way that is generative that lets me as uh, the 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 viewer sort of understand what the argument is and and where it doesn't become sort of well he said this and I said that and what's you know where it becomes sort of a a way for us to get a, a view of this perspective and then sort of think through it together which is something that I think generally in society today uh, we're not being very good at particularly if we have kind of differing opinions so I just want to say that I really appreciated that and of course this is also my my way of kind of uh, uh, initiating a little bit of a conversation about UAPs but I also want to say what I what you know as somebody who you know, got into academia is is so cool for me is to see your excitement about learning right your excitement you know you said well when this is over i'm gonna go study you know this person and that you to me <laughs> right this is this is why we get into this stuff right i mean this is why we do it because there are things that compel us that we're excited about that we want to find out more about and ideally because we want to be in a community where we can explore these things together and and um i don't know if you if you've been following some of the discussions on on twitter uh in the sort of the ufo realm uh but things there get ugly pretty easily and it seems like everybody knows what's going on you know they've they uh, this person uh is uh, is a shill this person you know believes the space brothers are coming here the other person has had the anal probe and you know everybody is so certain about everything right um and and yet at the same time um i think you know as in the discussions that you've had people with people like lou elizondo who was the the head of the 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 pentagon's a tip sort of uh, uh you know called it the us ufo desk if you will right um you know that you you're actually encouraging people to even go beyond what they might say normally uh and first of all i wonder how did you get into this because it's not immediately obvious sort of a transition from physics into uaps right mm -hmm. As for if, do I follow people on UFO Twitter? I don't. I don't follow ufology, quote unquote ufology. I don't demean it in any way. It's just that it's so complicated. I remember the first time I was, well, one of the first times I was being interviewed about UFOs. Firstly, I'm wondering, why the heck are you interviewing me? And the whole time, it was essentially the interviewer giving me a lesson. It's to the basics, like certain basics, of which I've already forgotten in UFO history. <laughs> And certain names, like I didn't right. know who Jacques Vallée was. I'm like, Vallée, oh, how do you spell that? Okay, let me write that down. Okay, so who's Bob Lazar? Okay, no, I think I saw a video of Lazar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one's false because I got into this because of Bob Lazar, which I'll get into. Oh, interesting. And then as for the talks on UFO Twitter, it's generally more about who is credible and who's not. So it is right, more right. along the lines of who's a shill, who's a quote-unquote grifter. These are words that I consider, I have a, a term that I, I don't think I've ever said. I call them hide-bounding repudiational words. So essentially, they're words that make you not want to investigate someone else. And I have a right. list of them. So platforming is another. As soon as you say, so-and-so, you're using this to give a platform to so-and-so, or it's a grifter, or 
I have a list of these words here. I just found that they're associated with having a certain point of view already and then not wanting to listen to people because you consider them to be crackpots or pseudo was another one to call someone a pseudo intellectual because most of the most of the time or pseudoscience because most of the time the people who are promulgating this quote-unquote pseudoscience in order for it to be pseudoscience you have to claim that it's scientific much of the time at least the people that i'm speaking to aren't claiming what they're doing is science in fact they're feeling like science is limited because it doesn't incorporate what their experience is or what they're working on. Mm-hmm. And then also the word pseudo in math is actually a positive in the sense that there's pseudo Ramanian geometry. You can't have Einstein's equations without pseudo Raman. I don't hold pseudo. So to be such a, as a negative. Yeah, yeah. N- not necessarily. Okay. Anyway, that's mostly what the talk is on UFO Twitter would be about. And I'm talking about the negative parts. I mean, there's perhaps right, 95% right. positive would be about who to believe and who not to. And because right. so-and-so has a book, perhaps you shouldn't believe them. Right. Mm-hmm. But how did you I, get into this? Yeah, how did I get into this? I was wrapping a documentary that I was talking about earlier. So I was wrapping that and the editor for or one of the editors for the documentary was saying, yeah, Kurt, you know, you should look into UFOs. And I'm like, look, the, the galaxies are extremely far apart or the next solar system is far apart. Even if it's close, it would take a million years or whatever the length of time is. And by then, because there's an exponential curve with technology, they should have progressed and so on and so on. And I just had many rebuttals that, let's right. say, the standard person has who's remotely, well, who looks into this even at a tiny amount. And then he's like, just watch these interviews, Kurt. Just watch them. And I forgot what they are. I think one of them was Bob Lazar on Joe Rogan. I'm not certain, though. Anyway, I thought, okay, this is interesting. This is interesting. So this is not just loons and so on. And I admit that I was one of these people who were extremely condescending to people who believed in UFOs. Like, I'm I'm embarrassed of that. I'm no longer that at all. Like, in mm. fact, it's difficult for me to be condescending to anyone. So, and that's just because I see that tendency in myself. And I... Well, that's a beautiful thing. No, sorry. That's <laughs> false. Let me say, I'm extremely condescending to everyone. And I fight with myself <laughs> all the time. So, I'm an extremely judgmental person. So, if Toe comes across as non-judgmental, it's my... Jungian shadow overcompensating by being extremely non-judgmental. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, and I just don't like people that say, well, where's the evidence? Snarkily sitting back like they're so confident. Mm-hmm. Like, look, I just checkmated you. Where's the evidence? Well, where's the evidence for many assaults? Like, are you going to go to someone who's just a sexual assault or another kind of assault and say, yeah, well, where's the evidence? Well, clearly, it, it happens. There are many, much of what we experience that we have no evidence for. We go home, we tell our, our wife or our spouse some story. And then about something innocuous. And then what if she says, well, where's the evidence? You're going to be extremely upset. Like, what the heck? I'm just trying to tell you what I feel, what I saw. Uh-huh. And of yeah. course, feelings and experiences can be misleading. Okay, yes. Or people can be lying. But these are people. So for me to be extremely clear, some of these people who report extremely strange phenomena like craft, like UFO craft, are people that we would believe in any other situation, where if there were two of them or three of them saying, I saw this person murder this person, that person would go to jail. I don't know about the legalities on murder, but you understand that we consider them to be credible witnesses in any other scenario, except when it comes to this. And there's 12 officers who are high ranking who say, oh, I saw this and here's how it moved. I saw it with my eyes and my instruments. Navy pilots. Right. I mean, right. So anyway, I I interviewed Jeremy Corbell because he's a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. So that was my transition. It was because I'm Mm -hmm. a filmmaker. So I'm like, okay, Jeremy Corbell, I'm interested in this Bob Lazar story. I'm interested in UFOs just a bit. Let me ask him. Let me talk to him about filmmaking. 
right? Can we just say sure. one minute? Bob Lazar uh, was first became well known because I think he was the first person to talk about Area 51, which most people will have heard about, which is this secret area around Groom Lake in Nevada, where they do all sorts mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. uh, experiments with new technology, but where some will claim there is also uh, alien technology and so on. So, and Area 51 is a big deal, and it's also become sort of a punchline and but but it was Bob Lazar who who uh, brought that to people's attention, and then it turns out that it, it really exists. Now Bob Lazar is an interesting character, but that I think has to go uh, uh, on record as being correct. Is that right, Kurt? Mm -hmm. So I don't know the history. So I don't know if anyone has said a single word about Area Fifty One prior to him. Apparently. There hasn't been, but I don't know. I just haven't verified. I don't know how to verify yeah. that myself. I've heard yeah, yeah. that many times from people. And also some of the people that I consider to be, well, I don't like to say certain people are credible because that implies certain people are not credible. And it's not like I believe everyone. It's more like I don't dismiss everyone. My immediate instinct is to not dismiss. That's not the same as believing. Right. Yeah. But it's certainly not the same as dismissing. Like I do not dismiss. I listen. I try to understand their point of view. And on the Toe podcast, mm -hmm. the Theories of Everything podcast, I listen to them. And if there are objections, it doesn't mean I'm just going to allow someone to speak no matter what and, and sell their quote unquote BS if that's what they're indeed pushing. It's more like if I have an objection, I'll cite it in real time, but I'm not coming mm -hmm. at it from a place of trying to prove someone wrong or someone correct. So as for... Right. Which debunkers, there's a whole world of debunkers, right? Yeah. And all they try to do is say, no, this is bullshit. There's no such thing as uh, UFOs or just balloons or whatever, right? And there are, seems like there are professional people. That's all they do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so one of the things I appreciate about you is your openness, your willingness to inquire rather than to go in there with with uh, you know your sh your shadow is doing a good job yeah thank <laughs> you thank you i thank god for the debunkers firstly because i think that they're a necessary position that anytime you have mm -hmm. some position it's great to articulate the counter position just because yeah. otherwise you could be going off the rails whichever way it is whether it's for or against some subject and secondly that studying ufos the more that you get into it especially the more you're related to consciousness and trying to conceptualize what consciousness is and how it relates. And geez, like I went through months and months of, of such debilitating anxiety and destabilizing experiences that I can barely speak about them. I'm still recovering from them. I started to pivot toe to talk more about mental health after that. And speaking about the perils of investigating and taking these theories seriously, I try to take every theory extremely seriously and have an open mind. I have this intimation that I have too much of an open mind. And I don't mean that in like mm -hmm. some self-congratulatory way because people seem mm -hmm. to prize mm -hmm. that in our culture. And I used to say, oh, when people say, hey, keep an open mind, but not so open that your head falls out. I'm like, yeah, you're justifying your own closed-mindedness. That's why you're saying that. Yes. Of course, if you say something's a reductio ad absurdum, how do you disprove without considering that possibility to be absurd already? As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. 
Mm. How's the flavor? Mm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Like, what if that's true? Whatever it may be. So I go in with an open mind, but then what happened was that I'm listening to so many people and I'm taking it so seriously. And this person, Bernardo Castro says so-and-so, Yosha Bach says so-and-so, Tom DeLong says so-and-so, this person says so-and-so. And I'm learning from way too many masters. And my mind is mm. like, okay, I'm trying to take their point of view on seriously. And when I say seriously, I mean, I don't think mm. anyone who considers the simulation hypothesis, like any promulgator of the simulation hypothesis, takes it seriously. I think you'd be terrified if you took it seriously. I think you'd be terrified if you took many worlds seriously. I think you'd be terrified if you took the mathematical universe seriously, that we're all just math. I think you'd be terrified if you truly took what it means to be one seriously. Like, we're all one. I think almost all of it's extremely, well, geez, like, like these people, when they say, oh, I'm studying so-and-so, you're studying it as if it's clinical on a piece of paper, distancing yourself from it. You don't know what it's like to truly believe it. And I know because I was interviewing many people saying, like, no, I'm taking you serious, like, feeling as if I am. And I can't even speak about it. I have to speak around it because I'm so affected by it. But certain theories that I was like, yeah, no, I'm taking you. And it's only until I had an experience of feeling what they meant that I'm like, geez, Louise, oh my gosh, I don't want that. Unless you've had some truth, some quote unquote truth that you feel like recoiling from that you're like, no, no, the world can't be like that. I don't. Oh my gosh. Then you're not taking it seriously. So anyway, learning about UFOs and consciousness can be debilitating. I've had to close my mind and that's mm -hmm. difficult mm -hmm. for me to do because I'm trying to be understanding of everyone. So the way that I'm doing that is, is simply by going back to math and physics and just studying that and slowly dipping right. my toes into consciousness. There's this guest called Frank Yang. Okay. So people have been asking me to speak to Frank Yang for so long. And I would have spoken to him one year ago when I had no issues with my destabilization, let's say. Then, then I had some episodes. I'll just call it some episode. And since then... I remember I even told Frank about this in an email, like I have to reschedule us. Then he sent me pages and pages of like, here's what it means. And, and it means enlightenment and, and this is awakening and so on you need to do. And I was like, I'm going back into yeah. my manic state, just reading your emails. I can't even <laughs> reply to you, Frank. I was speaking to someone. They said, yeah, you've been learning from too many masters. Not everyone is right. So stop thinking like there's this liberal part of me. I'm such a liberal person. Like I had mentioned that I'm judgmental, but I'm also liberal in the sense that I want to feel like, no, everyone's touching the same part of an elephant. And it's, yeah, yeah, they're incorrect in how they're saying, but there's some interpretation. They're not. So I'm trying to see how is everyone right? And they're incompatible. I'm just shoving pieces of jigsaw puzzles together and it's not good. <laughs> so I have to back up and start uh -huh. seeing also that. So here's a lesson in case anyone else is going through this, that my interpretation of what someone means when they say, for example, that we're all God or that we're all disunified from God or, or even the word God itself, my interpretation or your interpretation may not be what they mean. And so I'm ascribing mm -hmm. a certain significance to it. And then I'm getting carried away by that. But I can just, she's like, just be not attached. Just don't attach it. Then I was like, someone was telling me about this. And I was like, but, but if I take my non-attachment seriously, then what if I'm non-attached to my life or my wife? Like, well, I don't want to do something out of being non-attached. Should I be non-attached to? And then she's like, okay, how about this? 
don't be so attached to the principle of non-attachment. Then I'm like, that is genius. <laughs> oh my God. I've never heard a Buddhist or someone from the East say that. That line. So for like so much to save me. That line, my wife has saved me. Prayer has saved me. Oh my, oh my gosh. Well, anyway, if you're going through anything like this, don't take theories seriously. Like that's a peril of, or don't take too many theories seriously. Secondly, mm. don't take a non-attachment seriously. Okay. That's that. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> that was you great. Know, there's a famous uh, conversation between Ram Dass and Alan Watts in which they had had a, uh, a reasonable amount of wine. And uh, uh, Alan Watts said to Ram Dass, you know, you're too attached to nothingness. And uh, Ram Dass said, yes, and you're too attached to women. So that was the... Yeah. That was that. Mm, mm. Attached to being unattached. Yeah. Kurt, I, I had the, the the good fortune or the misfortune that one of the first serious books I read about, about UFOs was um Jacques Vallée's book called Messengers of Deception. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had that and, and right, remember that, Leslie? And and oh, yeah. if you start with Valet, right? Valet, in case some of you don't know, that one of the things that he did in this in this uh wonderful book called Passport to Magonia was to show that a lot of the things that we associate with UFOs today and with abductions and things like that uh uh can be found in in popular folklore all over the world going back thousands of years. And, and if once upon a time we had goblins and fairies and all sorts of creatures, some of which would take you away to a place that you might not come back from or you would come back from transformed. Um, and, and he said, well, now we have, we have these space creatures, right? And his argument really is that it's very much tied into to the phenomenon is very much tied into consciousness and consciousness plays a central role somehow. Right. And and it's also the case that if you fool around with goblins and witches and things like that too much, I mean, in the folklore that also can lead to madness right so it also suggests that we need to be careful when we start playing around with with these with these phenomena because there's something that seems to be quite powerful about them and the more we look into them the more they can potentially trigger things in our consciousness right mm -hmm. um, yeah so so um i, mean, I think I for me one of the, the the interesting things is sort of when you really start looking at the whole UAP UFO phenomenon is just how it branches out into a lot of different areas, you know, because of course there's all the speculation about how much does uh, the government know and so on and so forth. But, you know, you've had a lot of people on expressing these different kinds of views. And I'm just wondering where, where are you with it all now um, in terms of, in terms of your, uh, sort of where do you stand given yeah. the, the what what you've come across yeah unsurprisingly i'm on the fence i don't know right I, I think that when people say consciousness that it has to do with consciousness i think what they mean is that when one takes psychedelics or goes through some extreme meditative state or goes into some extreme meditative state which is rare so it's usually psychedelics that it feels as if one's being transported to another realm 
and perhaps even that that realm has been here the whole time, and it's extremely convincing, it's utterly convincing, then you wonder, well, if that's possible, what else is possible? What else just pops up throughout the rest of your life? What else? What else? What else? And I think this what else is what gets lumped in with consciousness. So firstly, there's no definition of consciousness, at least, well, there's no definition of consciousness, maybe by design, because to define it means to limit it, and maybe there's something unlimited about consciousness. I'm being more mystical there when I speak. But regardless, I think that's what people mean when they say that UFOs have something to do with consciousness. It's part of this what else that's similar to a psychedelic realm, if not equivalent to, or you can communicate with beings, they come from some other realm. And I'm using realm instead of dimension just because I'm a persnickety mathematician or someone who studied math and I don't like when people misuse the word dimension. But anyway, yeah, I think that's what people mean. And as for if it's something concrete, like just our own government, something physical, it's a craft, it's extreme technology. I'm open to that too. I keep being swayed from side to side mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. point where I'm just having to just assess it again dispassionately because to be taken away by it too seriously is a bit Oh, it puts me on lubricious ground, and then I'm betwixt and between. Well, it's not a fun place to be. You know, Alan Heineck, one of the early researchers, the astronomer from Ohio State, which I know about because I was there as an undergraduate, you know, he's the one, he's actually in Close Encounters of a Third Kind. He steps out of the crowd with a pipe in his mouth, and he has a Van Dyke. And the Frenchman in uh, Close Encounters, as you know, was... Jacques Vallée, not the real Jacques Vallée, but he was Jacques Vallée. Um, both of these guys spent their much of their professional career studying uh, unknown aerial phenomenon, of course, Jacques Vallée, we're just talking about. <clears throat> and both of them, even Alan Hynek, the, uh, the uh, astronomer at Ohio State, uh, finally came to the conclusion that they weren't physical objects in the usual sense that, you know, they weren't like Star Trek's Enterprise that flew down here at warp five or whatever it is. They had a way of appearing and disappearing. And I'm with you, Kurt. I don't like the word dimension either because it to me is a line that goes in the particular direction. But uh, there is a lot of talk these days, an awful lot of talk about all as someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the Best Sellers Trial Pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video.
alternative universes. You know, there are two or three movies right out, out right now, including Doctor Strange, my old comic book hero, coming mm-hmm. in and out of other universes. And when I first saw this stuff, I thought, this is crazy shit. And it was even too too much for me as a science fiction fan. But I remember Isaac Asimov, when they first started to talk about alternative universes, wrote a story in which stuff is going between universes. I don't remember which story it was, but Asimov was a pretty bright guy, you know. He got a new PhD every week, I think. And uh, so where are we with that? I, You know, the thing that has been most convincing to me, not really knowing anything, is that we must be dealing with a lot of different levels of technology or levels of uh, whatever it is in the universe, because there, there's such a divergence of experiences and reports. They don't seem to come from the same technology or the same creatures. So it's all very strange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I watched a little bit of your uh, interview with Avi Loeb uh, today. today? Oh, great. Should have been working. Um, well, I wanted to see that. Did that just come on? Yeah, so that's on. And, and I tried you know, to get that. I was a little too early. And Avi Loeb is is uh, the Harvard, what is he, an astrophysicist who, who uh, well, who's obviously very interested in this topic now. Uh, he believes Oumuamua may have been an extraterrestrial, well, it is an extra, it was an extraterrestrial object, obviously, but that it was uh, uh, not a natural, quote, object, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it turns out that he has had some paranormal experiences right and he is a major no is this not correct is that not right Uh, maybe i missed that then um but certainly uh gary uh, nolan who uh, is a very highly respected immunologist uh, uh at stanford is is involved in this uap phenomenon big time now uh, and somebody who, you know, was a potential nominee for a Nobel Prize or um, and he did have some some experiences that were highly unusual when he was very young. And I'm wondering to what extent does having those experiences put people in a position where they say, you know, I have to just go for it now, no matter what it takes, you know, and and the fact that there is more of a of a of a discourse that's sort of less stigmatized now will make it uh, will make the general environment more open and and allow people to speak more freely about this right yeah i think so i think if you have an experience you especially if you're tenured you're going to want to use your 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 knowledge to try and find some scientific explanation for it, or try and find some data that's replicable about it especially to convince others or to minimize the condescension that you receive. It's right. It's striking. That's the worst. Well, the part of the whole discourse that I dislike the most. I just wish there wasn't so much sneering and jeering and snide remarks. Right. And there are internal snide remarks between people who hold different positions. And then there's the more general, oh, this UFO crap, the little green men, right? Which, which has been very strong and, 
And I've often wondered, well, what is it about this that this phenomenon that attracts so much sort of scorn and dismissiveness? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, Jung felt that UFOs sort of represented, in some respects, a, a sort of a new planetary awareness in a way, right? Uh, that that it, as an archetype, it sort of represented that. And I'm wondering if it isn't sort of pushing people's buttons where the thought of something not earthly is just something that they have to push away immediately because it just seems besides any you know government attempts to dismiss people for their own nefarious reasons but because just the whole thought of something not of this earth is just something we can only see in you know a b movie or something but it's just psychologically uh too too foreign you know what i mean Yes, I think that it's such an important topic. It's like religion. It's not clear to me if there's more mm, despising and contemning in the UFO scene than there is in politics or mm. politics seems to be the main one. It's not like people bicker about religion like they used to, but still they do. So it's not clear to me if it's more or less than that. Also, when you're in a domain where there's such a, a paucity of evidence and the evidence is important, then I imagine that, that the same for religion, by the way. So I imagine that that's going to be the case. So it's understandable. I understand it. I wish it wasn't there, but I understand it. Mm -hmm. Well, as long as we're in this general ballpark, I want to mention uh, one of my favorite books. It's not well known. It's called Daimonic Reality, D-A-I-M-O-N-I-C. Demonic re Reality. Here, as I read something, it's a sweeping look at strange otherworldly events in the world around us. UFOs, fairies, phantom animals, visions of the Virgin Mary, alien abduction, and mysterious lights in the sky. It's by a guy called Patrick Harper, H-A-R-P-U-R. But one of the things he points out in the book, and this has been quite a few years ago, he wrote it, he has a sequel already. But um, I'm sort of interesting because when I got interested in UFOs, I mean, I'm old, this was in the 50s. I had some of the original. The what was the one book was called Flying Saucers on the Attack. It was like <laughs> these were the first books, and they had black and white pictures uh, from Mount whatever it is in California. These saucer shaped things. <clears throat> but the interesting thing is, the characters that would get out of these saucers were beautiful blonde-haired people from Venus, and they were very spiritual. So Harper in this book he says. What's changed over the years in the human psyche that we don't see beautiful people with long hair from Venus, but we see little green people that nab us in the night and look up our asses. So there's something going on in the bigger picture that he's, you know, he's a little like Valet. He doesn't really come to a conclusion, but he does point out the sweep of the mythic dimension and how it changes in time. And uh, having lived through this whole thing in, in the U.S., in the Midwest, it's true. I mean, we we were very interested in flying saucers when I was a kid and all sorts of aerial phenomena, and nobody talked about them being negative or anything. And, of course, uh, what's his name? And uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he wanted to make them very positive. Right. But uh, we don't always get that picture from the stories that we get from abductees and stuff. They're very strange. Or who was it you interviewed that was talking about 
uh, animal mutilation in Ireland. I won't even go into that. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe? Dark stuff. Yeah, I'm curious what you all think about Skinwalker. Or Alfonso. I hear a lot about it, but never have really looked into it enough to know anything. I yeah, listened it's... to some of the interviews that you had briefly, so... Yeah. Alfonso, what do you... Yeah, I mean, it seems <laughs> some people take it seriously. I really don't know what to make of it, and, you know, this is sort of my limit, as it were. It's not something that's fascinated me deeply. Apparently, weird things do happen there. But I don't know. It's never been anything that's particularly drawn my attention, to be honest with you. Um, mm. But what what do you make of it? I just wish some of these skeptics like Mick West would go there and film it. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. apparently it's speaking about a subject that has little replicable data. People say at Skinwalker, it happens repeatedly. So, mm. OK, why don't you? Right send your most staunch skeptics like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Mick West there, pay for them. There's apparently right. some billionaire who's funding the place. It seems like it wouldn't take much to get them to go. It's just some money. Like to a billionaire, that's just money. Right. Right. But I believe Bigelow set up a whole system there with videos and things like that. And in the end, they didn't come up with much that they could show the rest of the world. I mean, unless they're hiding it uh, for whatever reason, it didn't seem to, and which is not to say that nothing happened, but there's also something about these, about the phenomenon, if you will, that doesn't necessarily like to be photographed beautifully, clearly. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mm -hmm. know, um, there always seems to be some fuzziness about the whole thing, which may be a characteristic of the phenomenon itself. Right. Well, there's this great yeah, quote from interviews. Why don't we have more pictures? Right. You know, I had an experience uh, something like that at Finhorn uh, Community in Scotland. I was in a sacred forest near Finhorn. Some of you know about Finhorn. And I, I was warned that pictures don't always turn out. And I shot a whole roll of pictures and came home, and none of them came out. This was on a digital camera. Hmm. You know, and it was nothing really weird about it. It was just Finhorn is this spiritual community in which there are fairies plant fairies and stuff they'll right. make your pictures disappear but what more can i say right right yeah yeah and even if you try to photograph a seagull it's going to come out blurry even with <laughs> it's actually extremely difficult to photograph a moving object far away when you don't mm -hmm. know that when it's coming right right mitch hedberg said that maybe mitch hedberg was a comedian and he said i think bigfoot is blurry it's not the photographer's <laughs> fault <laughs> yeah yeah um should we open it to some uh questions from uh the larger community um there's an i love mitch hedberg mm -hmm. yeah he was one of the greatest greatest comedians i've never heard of him any questions if you want to put it in the chat no Maybe I think we can see too. some hands raised, Alfonso. Oh, yeah, okay. Kathy Sorry, Lyons yeah. I'm not, hand up. I'm not seeing them here. Um, thank you. Um, okay. Uh, of course, I'm in the wrong section where there are no hands raised. I can see Kathy Barnes. Yeah. I mean, why don't why, why don't you just start speaking? 
Yeah. So, so I would love to hear from, you know, we've kind of, I, I hear like, feel like you guys have kind of danced around, like who's has an opinion about it and this kind of thing. But I'd like to hear personally from each of you, if in fact you do believe there's life outside of earth or consciousness outside of earth. Alfonso, you want to start? Oh, um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I have anything particularly interesting to say about that. I mean, it seems unlikely to me that there isn't. Um, and uh, yeah, at the same time, I, I think that there's enough to suggest that whatever phenomenon we're dealing with may be something other than extraterrestrial. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it seems to be particularly weird, and also I think because of the the consciousness dimension, uh, it it may be something else. Um, but um, you know, some people are saying that it's actually something or that has been on the planet all this time. It's been here forever, and I think that's a very provocative idea, which would also kind of send us down a particular rabbit hole. So um, yeah, I mean, it seems likely to me. And for me, it's only one of the possible interpretations of, of what's going on. I certainly don't have any fixed view about this at this point. Well, I'm sort of with Alfonso. <clears throat> I think given the size of the universe, there has to be life out there and plenty of it, <clears throat> but it's pretty widely scattered. And how realistic it is to think that uh, uh, spaceships like uh, the Enterprise can fly from one place to another uh, in any practical way is probably not very realistic. I recently was looking at a new uh, interpretation of the, is it the Fermi's paradox? How do you say it? Mm. Why don't we see more life? <clears throat> and it involved an, a recalculation of how likely it was that life would evolve on any given planet, but it also included the time lag effect of communicating even at light speed between different different planets uh, or different places. So mm -hmm. I don't think our present phenomenon is accounted for by you know spaceships made out of metal uh, that travel at super luminal speeds, uh, it just doesn't seem like the best bet. I, I think I'm going to have to go with Heineken and uh, Valet that it's something trans-dimensional, if I can use the word, or something like that. Oh. But I don't know what that would mean. It's just there it is. I thought you said Heineken, and I was thinking of the beer, but... Um... <laughs> Alan Heineken, I guess yes. Kurt. My answer would be that I, I don't know. I don't have a personal opinion. I would say that it's a non-zero probability. Yeah, that's a good one. I no. see some questions here. Kurt, I'd love to hear what you might have to say about how there is no difference between inner space and outer space on the subatomic level. So inner space versus outer space. There's no physics term called inner space or outer space as far as I know. Something interesting though is when you look out at the star, you say, oh, I wish I could be in space. Actually, technically you're in space. There's someone else looking at you <laughs> sure saying that you're... So you're just as much a, a part of outer space as anyone else. It's interesting to think about that if the earth wasn't here, you'd just be floating. 
Like you're just in outer space. Well, anyway, that's all. There's just space. I don't know about inner versus outer. Hey, I sound like a non-dualist. <laughs> so uh, forgive me if I read another one. Do you think that there is a connection between how people engage with their imaginations today as opposed to in years past when you consider their divisiveness that has come into the discourse on uh, UFOs or aliens. Can you mind rereading the question? Yeah. Uh, do you think that there is a connection between how people engage with their imaginations today uh. as opposed to in years past when you consider the divisiveness, I never know how to pronounce that, I usually say divisiveness, that has come into the discourse on, on UFOs or aliens? Yeah, it seems to me like UFOs are a new way of labeling something that may be some phenomenon that's been here in the past. The reason mm -hmm. I say that is that some people have suggested that in different accounts, like th there are accounts of flying Roman shields, which sound extremely mm -hmm. similar to UFOs. And right. in certain cave paintings, there are what look like UFOs. Certain religious stories, there are what would be, we would probably now describe them as UFOs. So it's unclear if this is a new phenomenon. And we're now just calling them UFOs, unidentified flying objects. I think someone called them ships in the sky before. Mm -hmm. So you have to also view it through the interpretive lens of the culture at the time. Right, right. So it seems clear that there's a difference between how people imagine UFOs to be today versus 2000 years ago, because we have entire new vocabularies like computers. So that's yeah, that. I yeah. don't know about the divisiveness. Yeah. I, well, I don't imagine people are arguing about it, though. People argued about religion. So maybe... If religion is predicated on UFOs to some degree, then perhaps that's it. Well, here's a question, or I don't know, observation or something. There's a book that came out a few years ago called UFOs by Leslie Kern, K-E-A-R-N, investigative reporter. I heard her on the radio and bought the book because she sounded very credible. Uh, and she had been in Europe and Russia and talked to Fairly high, uh, and it's a good book, by the way, fairly high-ranking Air Force people in other countries, around Europe, in Russia, and even South America. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, there was no secrecy about it. They talked openly about these uh, objects that they see in the sky, and that they don't know what they are. And, you know, there's no stigma. You're not going to lose your pilot's license if you come back and, you know, have seen these things. Uh, I found her very credible to listen to and also the book and very credible. And uh, her point of view was it's only in the U.S. that we tiptoe have tiptoed around the phenomenon. In fact, I think it's Bolivia set up a whole thing in the government years ago to study it. So what's what's up with that? I don't expect you to know the answer, Kirk. It's just a question. I'm saying, what's up with it? Why are we so secretive about it? It's worse than sex. I mean, what's this, what's the deal? Yeah, it's strange that the government, all of this supposes that there's some conspiracy, but it's strange that the government is not disclosing information about UFOs. And they tend to position it as a threat. And they have, mm -hmm. at least NASA has come out, and I think other governments have come out and said this is not of any worldly government. So this is not of Russia's making, this is not of China's making, not of our making. Right. So it's not of the world. So this is our own government. So if you're going to believe our government when it comes to, well, vaccine mandates and so on, whatever else it may be, well, you're not going to believe them here. Well, of course, they're different parts of the government, I understand. However, okay, let's say it's not of this world. Well, to call it a threat and to not disclose it for reasons of national security means 
we have some, it's plausible that we can fight it or prevent it. But if it's from out of this world, I see that as being extremely unlikely. It's like we should just surrender or try to negotiate or try to meet it with love instead of arms. So it's a bit interesting to me, the whole apologue of it's a threat and we should combat it or strengthen ourselves. Hey, I don't know what you think. Well, you know, my favorite movie in all the world is still the day the earth stood still mm. made in 1950. And it was a cautionary movie about uh, about the uh, possible atomic war. But it was, uh, yeah, one of the planets sent his flying saucer down to talk to people on Earth about stopping their uh, their hostilities. It was a good movie. It was one of the first oh, movies, yeah. The Fairman. Uh, and uh, I just, I watch it again and again. And you said Leslie Kern, or was it Leslie Keen? It's Leslie Keen, I think. Because she was yeah, also the one who did the, uh, and the, the New York Times piece. UFOs. Yeah, because I just searched Leslie Kern. And I don't think yeah. that's the same person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, the reason I bought it is I heard a long interview with her on the radio and was very convinced that she was a solid uh, intelligent woman reporting mm-hmm. about this and making no big deal about it. Uh, maybe you one know, last... I just addressed her. Right, right. One last question, maybe, given the time. We don't want to overwhelm Kurt here uh, as much as we love having him here. Uh, question, why do we need to know about extraterrestrials? T- How does it affect our reality? More than being dismissive, I am really asking why people need to know this. Why do we need to vet others' accounts of their own experience? How does this need impede our ability to have our own experience? Great, great question. So this is just the the difference between the philosopher and the experimentalist. The experimentalist would be an instrumentalist and say, well, what difference does it make? And the philosopher would say, I'm curious. I want to know what is. That's why I'm investigating. I don't know if it'll make a difference. There's plenty that we thought wouldn't make a difference and did. It sounds like, by the way, we are searching for extraterrestrial life in the form of microbial life. It seems like almost every scientist is in agreement that finding microbial life on another planet would be one of the most groundbreaking Mm. discoveries of humanity. Finding life somewhere else, let alone somewhat intelligent life, let alone extremely intelligent life, let alone extremely intelligent life that has or is visiting us. Those are, of well, you can just judge for yourself if you think that that's interesting or not, or whether it has implications. You could also take the stance of the instrumentalist and just say, well, what difference does it make? In which case, well, almost, I don't know, maybe half of all of the university courses would go away because of, well, what difference does it make? Entire philosophy departments would disappear overnight. Maybe that's a good thing. Who knows? Kurt, thank you so much. It's really great to have you here. I really appreciated it. And, thank you all. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate being here. Thank you. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on TOE full-time. 
You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.